And one day I had a sweet little note from a neighbor um, uh, in my milk box. And he said, I'm so sorry, my Newfoundland found something in your sunflowers and just went tromping through your sunflowers and knocked over your bird feeder and definitely messed up a bunch of stalks of sunflowers. And if there's anything that I, I put the bird feeder back up, but if there's anything else I can do to repair this damage, let me know. And he left his, he left a contact information and I wrote back and I said, well, you know, I'm trying to return this to the, to this original landscape. And there would have been sunflowers here, but there would have also been bison tuned in to How It Looks From Here, Life in the Time of Climate Change. Here in the mashup of reality and uncertainty, life looks different to you than it does to me. The way race and gender, education and work and everyday circumstances combine in any person's experience, well, it's different. For every person, how it looks matters. So we offer these interviews as a way of giving us all new ideas and inspiration for making our way forward together. I'm Mary Claire, and today we're following up on last month's podcast with a conversation among the members of a panel of five widely recognized authors, each a faculty person at the Elk River Writers Workshop that took place this August in Montana's Paradise Valley. In the last episode of How It Looks From Here, these poets and writers of literary fiction and nonfiction shared their perspectives on climate change. In this episode, the five voices you'll hear join in dialogue about those perspectives. Take a listen to this exchange of ideas among writers Beth Piatote, Camille Dungy, J. Drew Lanham, Gary Ferguson, and Pam Mushuk. So everybody breathe in and breathe out. This is a lot of good input, helpful to hear how it looks to these five people. I, I wonder, I would like to ask you all first, if any of you has a question for somebody else who spoke on the panel. Do you have a question or a, a little bit more you'd like to know from someone else who spoke? Camille, go ahead. I've been thinking so much about this word wilderness, which I do right. also think is exactly at this root of this this Descartian thinking, this um, the um, Jeffersonian thinking, mm -hmm. this idea that there is an away mm -hmm. and that there is a here. 
and the, even the language of the Wilderness Act, land that was untrammeled by man, there are people on this land. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Caring for this land. Thank you. And, and even sometimes trammeling it and, yeah. and doing controlled burns and, and gardening it and caring for it. And the separation of, uh, particularly in the West, right? The separation of that there's that wilderness, there's that away, this pristine mm -hmm. space where man is supposed to not, his hand is not supposed to be there. And this other space that is, we can't fix this climate issue. Mm -hmm. If we understand nature is only being someplace away that's pristine and separate. And I just wanna hear from all of you ways that you're thinking and you're writing and in your living about how to kind of eradicate that 18th, 19th century notion of pristine wilderness into something that is more useful and more, more um, sustainable for how we can make a more diverse audience of people who feel they have access to the greater than human world and a stake in it and a right to be there and um and also an, an acknowledgement of the history of the people who have been here and have mm -hmm. lessons to teach us um how do we how do we do that in the language of our writing um and our and our living to be able to to make this necessary shift from that Descartian separatist thinking into a more holistic community thank you Thank you. It's it's a recovery, really. That's that sounds like that's what you're saying. What do you think, Beth? Um, well, it's not a recovery for us because we've been doing it the whole time. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, like, Thank you. Uh, so that is one thing, you know, around indigenous survival is that we have continued to have our relationships with our place, which is not wilderness, mm -hmm. which is our home, mm -hmm. and and though wild is a place that is deeply loved and tended mm -hmm. by indigenous people. Mm -hmm. And we sing to the plants and we have all of these cycles of care and mm -hmm. reciprocity and um, you know, being in relationship. Mm -hmm. But then we also have histories of genocide and removal that have strained those. Um, so for us, climate change is the current of, of apocalypse <laughs> it's we've already been through you know so many in this land and some wilderness is created through the erasure of um, indigenous people this one did right by us <laughs> yeah and um so when we talk about human societies our human our indigenous human societies are not separate from butterfly society and fish society and um, all the other, you know, beings that live in societies and that we have relationships of responsibility to and with and ongoing. Wilderness, I, I just feel like for me, wilderness came from the Bible. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> like that. Um, and um, I'm like, well, no wonder they killed John the Baptist. Mm -hmm. Like that guy knew he was a prophet. Like he came in and was like wearing animal skins. That's what native people do. Like it was the most indigenous figure in the Bible that he was the voice of. Yeah, Esau also, like, um, mm -hmm. like of course they're going to, you know. Um, but that it, but, but okay, so the, if someone shares a consciousness with 
the wild and then speaks it, that makes them extremely dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I think, and this is also a reason why language revitalization is so important from indigenous perspectives is that, that the consciousness with the land comes from the language of the land. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's also you know, this kind of close tending that you're talking about, like paying attention to what grows here, what is native here, what wants to be here. And, you know, I think one of the most profound things I ever heard one of um, my tribal members say was, everything just wants to be. Everything wants to be and become, like that's it. Mm-hmm. So that's the order of the world. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna share the mic. <laughs> I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go south, way south, because um, that's that's what I know best. I mean, I spend a good bit of time um, out west, but I, as an ecologist, I have a lot of. This is gonna sound um, some sort of ist, but I have a lot of um, restoration ecologist friends who, um, and, and I think about that sort of whole process when you talk about restoration ecology. You know, make America great again. Uh, somehow, in in some way, by your hubris and what you decide is going to be there and what you decide is not going to be there. Um, You bring things here like starlings or house sparrows or any number of things and then decide to, once they're successful, to decimate them once they've served their purpose. And as a black man, I got to see that right where it is, right? So, um, So I, you know, I take people birding out in these southern landscapes at the South Carolina Low Country, and if you've ever been down there, you get into the Ace Basin, and um, you know the, the bird life there is incredible, absolutely incredible. And to look out over um, this 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 rice marsh that um, that wasn't always rice marsh; it was Cypress Tupelo Swamp. That's what it was. Um, now, um, current um, sea level rise is, would would have pushed that line of Cypress Tupelo Swamp that wanted to be there to push that back. But um, once the, the Yemisee people were um, moved out of that, that land, it was then deforested by enslaved Africans, mm-hmm. right? Girdling trees and creating as rice moved down river. Make no mistake, you know, you'll hear people talk about King Cotton. Cotton wasn't king, rice was king. Rice was king in South Carolina. Rice had to do more with the, the mess that this country is in now than cotton ever did. Cotton had a role, but rice financed what went on. But you look at those rice marshes, and I take students down there, and here we are at the Cumbie River, at the site of Harriet Tubman's River Raid, and you look out over that landscape, and you can't see it, but enough mud was moved by enslaved people to create pyramids. That much mud, we call it plug. So here's this landscape, this ecologically rich landscape, this critically important landscape for migratory waterfowl and such. And no one wants to restore that to Cypress Tupelo Swamp. Nobody's asking that question, right? Um, and, and you know, the curious thing about that land now is to understand that the Spartina that is growing in those rice impoundments 
that those Central and West African enslaved peoples brought within their heads, they weren't just the beast of burden. Understand, they knew how to move rice, move water across landscapes to within an inch, controlling the tide. That Spartina is capturing carbon at a rate equal to forests. Mm -hmm. Those enslaved peoples are still working, still bound to that soil. But people don't want to tell those stories. Is that any less wild than the Cypress Tupelo? Mm -hmm. um, or important? So, you know, these questions of wildness, of wilderness, of what should be there, of what shouldn't be there, of what we want to be in places. You know, so much of it is, is a figment of what we think we want to see. And, um, you know, it's, I'm always amazed that people will be drawn to tears at murmurations of starlings on a landscape and set music to it, post it 50 million times. Um, but then those are birds that they want to kill close up. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm sort of in a state of... Um, I don't know, it's a conundrum for me because, you know, I'm, I'm pushing back on so much of what I was taught, right? And no one has an answer for me necessarily on what they want to restore and what they don't want to restore, what they want to keep and what they don't want to keep. I dare you to go to South Dakota and tell them that pheasants are invasive. Mm -hmm. I dare you. <laughs> You'll... <clears throat> but it's so, so people have made a choice there. European honeybees, <laughs> right? But there, there's a service there, right? Nobody's arguing, nobody's saying, you know what, the next, I'm just gonna go and, and all these hives, I'm gonna kill them. Because these are, these are workers that, I mean, there's, it's, they've sort of been enslaved in a way. And, and, and so we, we, we make these decisions about wild and, and wildness and wilderness, um, many of us, based upon what we want to see and what makes us feel good. Not, not necessarily what's, what's best and what's working. So just to be, right, and, and how we work things out and, and how we move through this life and these decisions that we make. You know, Mary, that whole idea of becoming small. Hmm. You know, my grandmother, one of the things that we didn't do when it was storming, you know, it was time to be quiet. She said, watch God work. Mm -hmm. And so you sat <laughs> and, and you just sat and you listened until it was over. And, and that, that Gary talks about, you know, those people who've been making all this thunder to sit back and listen. To sit back and listen and, and, and let others talk, including those things that we can't understand. That they're speaking that they're speaking, and if we listen, we'll hear them. And so I, you know, I, I go back to that low country, and, um, and I watch swallowtail kites and I, over the landscape, and I, and I think about, and I, you know, and I hear the ancestors talking. But, but, but then, you know, what, what they are saying, and that, that, that bitter misery of, of all that they went through, that they still have this, they're, they're still, they're saving us in ways. And so it's, it's, it's so complex because here I'm dealing with a, this landscape of all these stages, first of indigenous genocide, 
and then of enslavement and, 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 and the land bound up in that history. Mm-hmm. You know, and trying to unravel all of that, mm-hmm. I mean, how you, how, you know, how you, you write about it, and it's these several levels of, um, of discovery, um, but also trying to help others sort of understand where you are in it and in the, in the roles that you play. So um, means there's a lot of work for writers who are willing to face that, face some of these issues. But I don't think there are any easy answers for me as an ecologist, but as a black man, um, you know, being on, on that landscape and understanding what happened and understanding the role that we play and that people would have dismissed us from nature. Mm-hmm. Right? I refuse to accept that. I refuse to accept that. So, I'm, I'm I, you know, the stories that I want to write are, are stories of, you know, we're, we're there and we've been there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but because we haven't fit into your notion of what it means to be out there, mm-hmm. doesn't mean we haven't been. And, and this, um, that if you're associated with wilderness, you're dangerous. Pam, what are you thinking? I, I'd just like to say one thing, one more thing about healing and writing and um, and climate change, and that is, um, I'm writing this book about my long journey through this disease, this disease, and finding, uh, you know, my path in the world. But um, I had many healers, and I said, I, you know, only listed two of them, but. The, I had a medicine woman, the medicine woman of the Tona Atom Nation was sending her owl, uh, owl people during my surgery to make sure that the surgery went okay. There were prayer circles among um, two prayer circles in North Carolina that were organized by African-American friends of mine and, um, and two curanderas who, uh, from New Mexico and one from Mexico that were helping me, sending me mushroom mm. extracts and, um, and other plants. But healers, when I started writing about all of the healers that came together all at once, as if an orchestra was being formed, mm. um, and they did, they came all at once to help me. And I think, you know, I sent that, that book to one big agent, white male agent in New York, big name. He said, you've got to take all, you can only stay with Western medicine, or this is never going to be published. This will never sell. He said, take the, the, how dare you talk to cancer survivors about metaphysical things? He said that. I have the letter. And that's the problem sometimes with looking at climate change. We need all kinds of forces and all kinds of voices and all kinds of healings for this to happen. Thank you. Well, if we Thank keep you, circling back to the same people who have been speaking, then we get the same answers. Mm-hmm. And those aren't working. Yes. <laughs> yes. Right? yes. We need new answers. Yes. 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 Gary. What's on your mind? If I could say something too, I, I was so hard on science earlier. I, I, I want to give, give it some credit right now. I, I think one of the most hopeful things is biology, especially at least at the cutting edge, is, is moving away from what had been essentially a mirror of classical physics. 
where everything could be measured and thereby controlled and thereby predicted and whatnot. And they're really realizing that this is all pretty much a rhythm of exchange. And so biologists are starting to use string theory and chaos theory and things like that to understand the fact that what you understand in this moment doesn't have a whole lot to do with what your capacity to understand what happens a month from now. And it, you know, one of the heartening things for me is to, and, and, and this is really just science catching up to what indigenous cultures have known for a very, very, very long time. And that's that, I mean, even, even with each of us, we don't, we don't end uh, at our skin. We, we really don't. Um, you have more microcells in you than you have human cells. You've got 100 trillion human cells in you. And without those microbes, a lot of which came to live with you after you were born, so there are other life forms. That's what's breaking down the nutrients that you take in through the food and allowing your brains to work and your, your muscles to work. It's the sun, the daylights, that's setting your melatonin levels, which not only allow you to sleep, it, it's, it's what uh, helps you fight cancer and, and prevent cancer in the first place. You're the coolest thing in the world. You walk out among these trees, these trees, yes, you're breathing out carbon dioxide. They're taking it in, they're giving off oxygen. We know about that. But now we know that they're giving off chemical uh, compounds called phytoncides, which actually every breath you take under that tree will help fortify your immune system and strengthen your vital organs. This is, we are in a great and grand rhythm of exchange and to think that I'm this self-contained person I am at the edge of my skin is again a kind of dividing, a kind of separation that needs to be profoundly uh, altered and I think science can be a part of, 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 of the solution. Camille, are you having a thought? Yeah. I, I do. It, and it, it comes back to coming both to language and to, to knowledge in the way that, that, that language and um, drives and delivers our knowledge. So kind of being open to more. Um, what, what you just said about the trees, that, that there's, there are some trees, that, particularly some conifers, that, that, is, that are antiseptic antibiotic. Like they do Lysol, right? Like the pine scented Lysol, right? Like that is what a tree is already doing. Or uh, relatively recently, some CDC study that said, you know, if you open your window, not open the window, just open the, win the, the curtains to get light in. You know, when grandma said, just turn the light on, it won't be like it has antidepressant um, possibilities <laughs> and actions. It surprisingly burning sweet grass and sage, anti antibacterial, antiviral potentials in that all of these ancient wisdoms, right? Mm -hmm. We call we call a particular kind of farming that is a post World War Two version of farming conventional farming. Right. Um, so then I think let's rethink our language because a localized farming, a seasonally related farming, you eat this when it is in season and you wait longingly for it around the rest of the year until it's that in that season. Again, these kinds of knowledges that um, that humans have had um, that we have uh, dismissed for a variety. Not everybody has dismissed, but but is very frequently dismissed for a variety of reasons having to do with um, settler colonialism and misogyny and racism and and money. Right. Those yep. are the like key yep. reasons that those are dismissed. Um, but also the intelligences of our plants and of our uh, animals that know um, 
in that crazy Colorado weather, I've learned to pay attention to the birds. And when the birds sort of start to do stuff, I'm like, okay, what's coming? You know, there's like, there's winds coming or rain's coming or something's coming because this is not the time of day they usually go into the spruce. So something's happening because they are seeking shelter, right? So I can watch that and then figure out what I need to do um, for myself. But that that kind of attunement uh, I live in the suburbs. I can do that in the suburbs. You can do that in an urban setting. You, you don't have to be out in the rule of the wilderness to be able to have that kind of, um, of attention and awareness. And I just feel like that it means moving a little slower in some ways and moving a little faster in other ways and paying attention differently. But again, I think it frequently comes down to language and, and like pushing against calling something conventional farming. Um, and understanding that that's actually disruptive farming, like that's like that way of farming is is um, it was it was new and destructive and it, and and failing, <laughs> um, and we should go back to the conventions, right, um, of other times instead. Yeah, you use the word aggressive, aggressive farming is what. Yeah, and you're talking not that. Yeah, yeah, being connected. Okay, everybody, you've been listening for a while. I bet you've got a question or two. If you do, don't be shy, and I'm going to do the Oprah thing and maybe have you come up, um, although I'm not as good as she is. <laughs> yes. Hello, everybody. Can I be heard? I can be heard, right? Um, thank you so much for your discussions. Um, it was very insightful. This is for uh, the bird brains in the group. Uh -huh. um, it seems that particularly people that are literarily inclined and people that write are fascinated with birds, more so than I would say a lot of people fascinated with wildlife. It seems like writers gravitate towards birds. Why? I, I, I <laughs> because we all want That's to good. fly. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, say that again? We all want to fly and have wanted to fly since we were babies. And we remembered flying in our, in our other lives. <laughs> I mean that that uh, to yeah to fly to to defy what holds us down. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean that's a, it's 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 aspirational. Um, so it, it's um, I I don't I don't think that um, that it, you can't help it. Right. You you fall into to bird metaphor before you fall into many others, but that flight. And we like to, we would love to have the sight of the eagle uh, that be that high up in the air and mm -hmm. be able to see under the snow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also, it's song. Yes. Song. Yes. yes. yes Amen. Birds really communicate, and um, <laughs> once you learn, I actually am not, walk with Drew and he'll, he like picks out the song. I'm not very good at that, <laughs> but I recognize and acknowledge the beauty of the song. Um, oh, you're absolutely right. But this morning when I was up on the ridge, what I heard first was that warbling vireo, and I couldn't find her. And I was looking all over, going through the bushes, and there she was feeding her fledgling. But I heard the song first. See, I would have been like Pretty Bird song. <laughs> I, I would have done the warbling program. <laughs> We've got another question over here. So maybe a point counterpoint to that last question. Uh, what about roots and fungus and underground? Oh. Who's a fungus person? 
I love that. Stuff. <laughs> the underground world is the, is the great uh, oh, chance for us to, again, not only discover lots and lots of life forms that we didn't even know existed, but the communication and the interdependence. You know, I talked about these lessons, the qualities of nature. That's number one, it's interdependence and the fungal networks that allow trees to not only pass uh, nutrients back and forth, sugars, carbons, but uh, to alert uh, another tree, maybe of a different species, 40 yards away, that there's an insect invasion happening so that that tree can express its genetic capacity for um, chemicals that will help slow down that invasion. This is, this is amazing. And again, across species, it's happening. And so I think that's one of the most exciting things uh, going on uh, in the world. Camille, go ahead. Forrest Gander and Brenda Hillman both write a extensively about lichen. Um, and on my way here, I stopped by um, some petroglyphs outside of uh, Thermopolis, Wyoming, and and took some pictures of the lichen there for Brenda and just kept thinking some of these lichen, which are, by the way, two species who come together, right? So it, the true diversity building life, but also some of those lichen may have been there thousands of years ago when the people made those carvings, right? So the longevity of some of these fungi that are, that's a this mind-blowingly beautiful thing because they seem small, but they're vast. Beth, go ahead. Uh, just back to my nerdy language revitalization, when you said, when, who is writing about roots? I was like, well, <laughs> I write about roots because of the structure of our language. Um, uh, we have a polysynthetic language that there's a root and then the verb is in the middle of the word and then the who and the how is the front of the word and the when and the where is the end of the word so um so i have a poem called because our roots are in rivers not latin <laughs> um so even you know th those are the kind of roots that i was thinking about but the other roots are also very cool but they're kind, they're, kind, they're all kind of the same thing um like where do where does the language come from that comes out of these Roots. Thank you, Beth. Anybody else have a question? Yes, here's one. I wondered how you see education of children playing into the what we're discussing, and because that's where the hope is going to come from. Children who have learned how to live in the world. So I just wondered how what approaches you thought about. Thank you. What do you think? Did you all hear that? Okay. Drew, you got a thought? <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, I, I would, I, I, I say more outside, but then there's the conundrum of, of, of black and brown communities being downstream of toxic flames and, you know, almost an order of magnitude greater in chronic pulmonary disease. So, you know, um, I say same water, same air, but right now we ain't breathing the same water, we ain't drinking the same air, or, or breathing the same air. So, but I, I think, um, you know, one of the things I would love to see would be um, the, the ability to um, 
you know, to think about bringing um, children back to these ideas of, um, of, of, of soil and growth and, and hands. And, and so we talk about community gardens and school gardens, and, and, um, and, and there are some school districts that are more successful than others. But when you have children that, that, that think peanuts grow on trees, mm -hmm. um, that a significant portion of children think that, that bacon comes from plants. That they don't understand that um, you know where meat comes from. That, that there's life and death in that. That there's life and death in agriculture. So I, I think to to have some point of, of of contact for children with soil, really, mm -hmm. with soil itself. Um, you know, I, I think about the the pleasure I used to have as a kid of, of going barefoot. Yeah. And, and feeling um, the ground. And I don't know how that happens, man. I don't know if, you know, um, there's probably some sign off that you got to do on it. <laughs> um, but, but it does. It, and, and so I, by the time the kids get to me, you know, they're, I mean, they're adults really, but their disconnection from life on earth and from soil. And, and where things come from, mm -hmm. how things grow, mm -hmm. is um, is disconcerting. So I would I would I would love to see somehow credit given to schools and school districts um, for being for, for growing food. Yeah, yeah. Um, that there somehow be credits built in um, to that, and, and but but also um, children are encouraged from a career standpoint that there that there is life in soil and, and green and we don't do a good job of that at all. That STEM means anything but growing things. Uh-huh. Right now that's that's really true. What Camille, you're raising kiddos right now. Yeah. Right? I was I was like i I'm talking every single time and I'm not gonna talk about it this time, but I can't not do this one. Uh, <laughs> because like I gave you the subtitle of the, the the history of a black mother's garden. Um, just do do a little lit review on your own, um, and and look and see. With the exception of Amy Nasakamatano's beautiful new book, but that came out in 2020, um, and some books by Barbara Kingsolver um, and Robert Wallkimmer. Um, most of these are post uh, post 2000. Um, mothers do not show up in the environmental canon. Like, apparently, <laughs> people are just, they just happen. And then they tromp off into the wilderness. What does that mean? That the environmental canon has erased the act of, of caretaking small people. Like, that is a rupture. <laughs> in the fabric of, as you're saying, of the way that the world works. Um, and so, uh, like, yes, the correction is happening, right? I'm, I'm working on my book. It's, I, I mentioned these people, but like, I just did that on one hand. That is ridiculous. Oh, there's another book that is just re-released by a woman named Josephine Johnson. Um, it's a beautiful, beautiful book called Inland Island, and she speaks um, very actively about about 
care, mothering and caretaking, and um, and in some of her fiction, she has alternate paths for women, um, some of whom follow um, become mothers, and some of whom it's very clear that is not going to be the thing that they do. And there's other ways that they are caretakers. But I just really believe that unless we understand each other in a relational, to use that word, in a relational, in a sense of community, um, in sense of communal care and understanding um, and, and neighborliness and all of that, these questions that we have, if we cannot figure out um, how to honor our own homes, and the structure of, of homes and how those are built. How do we honor the big home, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how do we understand how we have to live in community in order to uh, resolve the crises that we're facing and take care of, of the next generation? Yeah, thank you. You know, think, think, just, this is occurring to me for some reason, Camille, as you speak, the last three days, you don't have to remember them precisely right now. But all of the people, all of the, the plants, all of the animals, everything that went in to getting you from where you were to where you are right now, including the food you ate at lunch, every bit of the food you've eaten here, every bit of the food you've eaten every one of those days. If you just stop and consider the the diversity and complexity and richness and generosity. You know, one of the things that we have found ourselves observing, which I don't think will be news to any of you, is that we really need nature, we people, but nature doesn't really need us. But I've had people argue with me about that because I think there is a way, as Beth, you were describing, that humans are being part of being right-sized, and please check me on this, is is that there is a relationship there as well. And so we are invited to be here. We are invited and, and welcomed here, not in destruction, but in great gratitude and presence. And thank you for being writers. Ah, oh, and thank you all. Beth, it looked like something crossed your mind. Oh, you're giving such a beautiful ending. I was just gonna say um, that, um, uh, that sense of humans being part of it is that the animal's perspective on humans is that they are pitiful. <laughs> I mean, they're right, right? And so it's, it, it, what, it is the animal's generosity and, you know, um, that, and, and so having those stories that <laughs> show how pathetic and useless humans are, you know, is, is really important to have humility. And just I want to comment on what Camila was saying about the, the canon, and it's like, well, if your canon starts with Thoreau, <laughs> like that's your template, someone who erases all of women's labor, you know, like very, very intentionally. And so I, I really love the way you're thinking about that. Um, but I really should not have taken away from your beautiful. Well, on, the, the, on the contrary. It's very beautiful. Well, thank you all for being here, and oh, you're welcome you. to go.
Learn more about each of these authors and the Elk River Writers Workshop in our show notes. Treat yourself and pick up the writing of these beautiful beings. Again, check our show notes to find lists of each participant's books. And now before we go, a quick pitch for our podcast. If you like what you're hearing on How It Looks From Here, make sure to subscribe. Let's get these perspectives out there. Tell your friends and family. Share a link right now with someone you know would enjoy learning how it looks from another viewpoint. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. How It Looks From Here is an educational collaboration between Full Ecology and the System Zoo. How It Looks From Here was created and produced by me, Mary Claire, and Joe LaVisca, editing by Joe LaVisca, music by Cedar Mathers Wynn and Gary Ferguson. Find us on Instagram at Full Ecology and at www.fullecology.com. Keep listening and be in touch.